Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say a special thank you to our online donors who make this podcast possible. Today, Adam is asking me questions behind the sermon, The Problem with Resurrection, which is on John chapter 11. So we are going behind the sermon for this week. This week's sermon is The Problem with Resurrection. You can either listen to it on the podcast or find it on our Facebook video stream. And Adam is here to ask me questions that he has, as well as there is one question from the congregation this week. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Very excited. So that's great. So Adam's going to be leading us through his questions to talk about what went into his sermon, what got cut, and what this sermon's really about. So Adam, take it away. All right. So this week you talked about John chapter 11, which is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's the final miracle of Jesus' seven miracles in John. Um, I know for this sermon in particular, because we talked a lot last week, um, that this sermon took a lot of different turns and went a lot of different directions over the past uh, several days. And you ended up talking about the temporary nature of miracles, which we'll get to in a little bit. But tell us a little bit about some of the other directions that this sermon was headed throughout the preparation process. Yeah, I think this was the fourth version of this sermon that (laughs) arrived on Saturday. I had three different versions, and what happens is every week I meet with a sermon study group, and sermon study group hears draft one. And so I presented this whole idea about grief and death and the absence of God, and there were two people on the sermon study group who very vocally said, that's a nice sermon. It doesn't really work because God undoes all of that with the resurrection. Hmm. So I essentially ran into this logical wall, if you want to call it that, in writing this sermon, where everything I was started writing ran into the idea of, and the problem of the fact that Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead. And I wrote a second sermon and then a third one, and I just didn't like it because I kept hearing their voices in the back of my head saying, yeah, but he fixes the problem. So it's not really applicable to the way that we understand death. Mm-hmm. So after the third version, around Thursday late morning, (laughs) I just surrendered to it. And I said, okay, the problem with this story is the fact that Lazarus dies again. Yeah. Like that's, that's what I have to face because that's something that we, we can all talk about and the fact that we all face death. And even though it's great that Jesus rose this, uh, rose Lazarus from the dead, eventually has to die again. And when does that become an injustice? Is it if Lazarus is awake for only a few hours or uh, is is brought back to life for only a few days? Um, There is some church traditions that I didn't get into, um, but some church tradition says that he lived for another 30 years past this. Is that really good? Or is that uh, do other people that die younger feel cheated by all of this? Yeah. Um, So I think that there's a lot of interesting things that come to light when you talk about the temporary nature of Lazarus's res- resurrection. And I think it addresses that concern that was brought up on sermon study group this past week. Nice. So were those, you mentioned there, were, this was like a fourth draft Were those second and third, did those both have to do with uh, kind of like Jesus meeting us in our suffering or did they have, was it all kind of related to that idea or was there any uh, alternate? Yeah, it all had to do up? with suffering and how we deal with it. And, you know, trying to connect this to black history month is another thing. Yeah. Um, I was just lost. Like I had other stories. Um, I had stories about um, somebody who experienced grief when Martin Luther King Jr. died, even though they didn't know him. Um, And so I was trying to connect it with all these other stories from black history. And the problem was, is that racism is still alive. Mm. So how do you talk about resurrection with a very real evil that is still present that we face today? Um, so once I started, I just started going through all of the, the black authors that I've read in the past couple of years and uh, came across James Cone that I read two years ago. And I was searching for Lazarus or if they talked about it to see if they had anything to say about <laughs> it. And I, I searched heaven to see if he said anything about resurrection. And that's when the line came up. Yeah. The idea of heaven is irrelevant for black theology. Yeah. And I thought, whoa, what's this? And I read it and it really talked a lot about, um, you know, the message of Christ in the face of evil. And I feel like there's a lot of connection to that with what happens in the story with Lazarus dying again. Wow. Yeah. Um, let's dive into the story now. Um, in the early parts and the early verses of this story, we have these sisters, Mary and Martha, who 
are uh, talking about their brother Lazarus uh, being dead and how, how God, and you made the case essentially that, that this is a, a moment where God doesn't hear a prayer. Um, can you kind of add some commentary on, on that a little bit? What would you say to, so to Christians today who struggle with God's unanswered prayers um, in relation to John chapter 11? There is a real sense among Christians and even barely Christians that pray that God doesn't answer their prayers because God is punishing them or that they need to uh, um, repent in order for their uh, prayers to be answered. This is f- about as far away from the biblical story as you could possibly imagine. I mean, there is that idea present within Psalms, for sure, with the idea that God isn't answering prayers because um, because the, the children of Israel are, are sinning. Mm-hmm. Um, that idea is present, but the story of Scripture is filled with unanswered prayers. And church has always been really good about celebrating answered prayers yeah. and really bad about celebrating un- unanswered prayers. Yeah. I actually preached a whole sermon about what happens when God doesn't answer prayer. I think it was called when prayer doesn't work um, because I think it's really important to talk about because most of us, I mean, everybody that comes to the paradox um, has had unanswered prayers in their lifetime. And we're not talking like, well, I prayed for a Mercedes and I didn't get it. We're talking about the real stuff that is unquestionably good, that when you believe that God could have done something about it, um, God didn't. And I think that those are things that we have to pay attention to and accept as part of our congregation rather than try to push those stories to the side or not let people hear that because it might scare people away from God. Yeah, I remember the the first time you invited me to speak at Paradox, I, that's actually what I preached about was an unanswered prayer. And at the time, like you know, it was so freeing to be able to talk about it because in the current context I was in, I didn't feel like that was a sermon I could really share. And at Paradox, it was so like, even though it was, it was kind of a, just a story about like a, a very, in retrospect, trivial, uh, unanswered prayer in my life. I would just the ability to share and, and lament about that a little bit in a, in a church setting was very freeing. I remember. Yeah, and you didn't want us to record it, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's correct. I, <laughs> because yeah. you were working for a church, and we're not trying to talk bad about that no, church no, no. as much as it's something that when pastors talk about their own unanswered prayers, congregations typically get real defensive. Yeah. And I'll tell you, like, that happens at Paradox. We have created the expectation that we do talk about those things, but people don't like feel good about that. Sure, yeah. But I think it's necessary to talk about because it helps people to see that they're not alone when they suffer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do remember, I, I think on a podcast or something, you preaching on unanswered prayers. What was the, what was the story that you preached on just in case anybody wants to reference? Yeah, it was Matthew it. chapter six, where Jesus is teaching people how to pray. Hmm. And the sermon, it, it's, it's a two part sermon. The first part was the first week, which was how to pray or what prayer is. And then the second part was when, when prayer doesn't work. And I think it's important to talk about both of those things at the same time. And I will tell you, in my experience with church, uh, church has been very bad at speaking about those things together. Yeah. Um, this next question kind of relates to, to the same thing. You also made the case that when Martha in John 11 is talking to Jesus, she's essentially saying, like, if you would have been here, this, this could have been different and Lazarus could still be alive. And you made the case that this is a lament, right? And we see laments all throughout scripture. We have a whole book called Lamentations. Um, and yet, as you reference with prayer, Christians um, often have a hard time today with laments, with lamenting in church and having that be a, a practice of Christianity. So why do you think that that's uh, such a hard thing for Christians to grasp when it's so present in scripture? Why do you think that laments are seen oftentimes as a lack of faith rather than as a part of faith? I think this is where capitalism comes in and hijacks the message of Jesus. Hmm. Because I think the biggest marker of success for churches in America today is how much you grow. Yeah. And there's a sense that growth is the most important thing. And the more people that you can have at your church and the bigger church that you can build, the better your message is. And while there is some, some truth to the fact that you're, the, the message of a church has to resonate with someone, um, <laughs> when you get closer to churches that are all about growth, you get this sense that we can't say anything negative about God, no matter what, because it could be somebody's first time in church 
and we have to make sure that they get the 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 intro message, which is God is yeah. good, right? Right, right. And so we can't risk that. So we got to just only say good things about God. Mm-hmm. Now, I I've seen some churches deal with this in creative ways uh, that have grown quite ex- quite quickly. Um, but at Paradox, what we try our best to do with the the liturgy is to say that every week we lament together. And yes, every week we celebrate together. We never eliminate one or the other because it's important to hold those things together. Um, but, uh, to be able to sing a song of lament every week is a very unique thing that I feel very lucky and privileged to be part of a congregation that does, because I believe that honesty is the most important thing within a church, not growth. Mm. And the more honest we can be with our message about Jesus, the better, um, I, I feel like that then we're living the closest to what Jesus would have us do. Yeah. I feel like we could do like a whole separate podcast on capitalism and Christianity. That's, that's such a fascinating topic. Well, even then like pastors, I know that, you know, don't view capitalism as the the core of Jesus's message. <laughs> like so much of the conversation is, Oh, your church, you're a pastor, huh? How big is your church? And it's yeah. like, is that the, is that the point? Yeah. Um, and I understand that you've got to resonate with somebody, right? But I don't view the biggest churches as being the most successful. Um, in my opinion, the, the most honest churches are the most successful, the ones that can say things honestly and the congregation stays together and grows because of it. Yeah. Um, and grows personally, not uh, number wise. Yeah. And I know we've talked about this a lot, but to the, for the laments and celebrations that we do in the liturgy, I think what we found is that the celebrations are enhanced by the, by the laments and the laments are enhanced by the celebrations and that all of a sudden they start to take on both start to take on deeper meaning because we're really honest about both and not, uh, don't try to just highlight one. Yeah. And I've, I, I really feel that we've talked, as you said, we've talked about it. The, there are songs that used to drive me crazy, um, that worship leaders would pick <laughs> And I love our worship leaders here at Paradox, but I have grown to appreciate them when they're joined in lament. Yeah, absolutely. Because then I don't feel like the lyrics are naive. Mm -hmm. I feel like they're part of the human experience, which is celebration. We have to remember celebration is just as important as lament. Because if you only have lament, it's just going to be depressing (laughs) for the whole year. Exactly. Um, And I believe that ultimately the Christian message is a message of hope. And to go back to the story of Lazarus, um, this is a story about hope in the face of suffering or love in the face of suffering. And the minute you eliminate the suffering part of it, which is Lazarus dying again, is the minute that the hope or the love becomes less than what it actually is. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's go to the famous passage now of, of John eleven thirty five. It's known as the shortest passage in, in scripture, Jesus wept or Jesus began to weep, uh, depending on the translation. Um, you, you spoke a lot to and emphasized, and we did this a lot of paradoxes, emphasized the human nature of Jesus. Um, I think some of the criticisms would say, like, th- does this take away from the divinity of Christ? What, what would you say to that idea that highlighting Jesus weeping and, and the human nature of Jesus as he's willing to just kneel down next to people he cares about and, and, and cry does that take away from his divinity? I got in trouble a few years ago for preaching a sermon from Revelation where um, I'm going to have to remember, I believe it's Revelation 4, where it talks about the lamb of God and contrasting it to the lions somehow. I think it might be 5. Revelation 5, sure. I, I will tell you, I'm not a great Revelation expert. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I talked about how the lamb represented the powerlessness of God mm. and how God, while we like to think of God as the lion, which is the powerful God, the, the story of Jesus is the powerlessness of God and representing that and that aspect of God that so much of humanity has missed. I mean, even to this day. And that made a lot of people really uncomfortable. Um, and I would say that it makes a lot of people uncomfortable to this day. Absolutely. Because we don't like to worship a powerless God. We don't like to worship a God who can't fix everything. And yet there's this story uh, about Jesus who doesn't fix everything. Like there are uh, these miracles that he does in John's gospel are all temporary and all of these people suffer again. Um, This is where I wish I would have heard stuff like this before I went to college 
because in my opinion, in college, the story of Jesus was about convincing other people that he, that he was the son of God. And that was the most important thing. I think now if I did college all over again, I think I'd be much more, if people asked me about my faith, I'd, I'd be much more about how the message of God helps me to live in a world filled with suffering and to respond with love and to not respond with bitterness. And if you don't find that message helpful, that's fine. I will tell you it's been helpful to me. And the most helpful thing I can do, even if I believe in resurrection, is not to go to a funeral and preach about how Jesus is coming back soon, but instead is to go to a funeral and weep and lament beside those who are hurting because that's exactly what Jesus, the powerless God, did. Yeah, I, I love that example of, of Revelation as well with the Lamb. It's such a, such a powerful image that we often don't fully acknowledge how, how crazy that really is. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited to preach on revelation at paradox whenever that happens, whenever we do the series again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it'll be a little bit different <laughs> is all I'll say about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so coming to the miracle part of the story, uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, I think you've said this in the past, but resurrection is a, is a pretty big deal, right? It, it's, something that especially to our agnostic and atheist brothers and sisters would be very hard to, that's a very big entry, entry barrier to, to believing in Christianity. So, so my question is, uh, do you believe that, uh, sorry, do you have to believe that Jesus literally raised Lazarus from the dead in order to be a real good Christian? No, absolutely not. Why? Um, Jesus didn't raise Lazarus from the dead and say, this is it, believe this, or you missed the whole point, right? And if he did, I think I'd have a different conversation with you. And not only that, I would then point to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which would say, <laughs> they didn't even find this story worth mentioning, <laughs> right? And it's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke got down with John and they said, okay, you're going to tell the story of Lazarus. Right. I'm going to tell the story of the demoniac. That, that's not how this came to be. we got to cover being. all the bases. All yeah. four of them thought they were telling the complete story of Jesus. Mm. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't even find this worth mentioning. Not only that, but when you want to talk about the historicity of the Gospels, uh, John's is the least historically accurate. And he's the only one that tells the story of Lazarus' resurrection. So you can make a compelling case that this didn't actually happen, and it's more of a myth than a historical fact. Now, at this point, we can spend all kinds of energy <laughs> debating and going into archaeology and going into witnesses and all that stuff. I don't think that's the point of this story. One of the reasons I love the parables of Jesus is because we don't waste any time debating whether or not they yeah. actually happened. Yeah. We can actually just listen to the story <laughs> and apply it. And nobody sits around and says, was there really a son who left his father and went and lived in the city? We don't do that because we know it's all made up. And that's what I love about those stories. Um, now, there are people that believe that Jesus re uh, resurrected Lazarus from the dead. I would never want to discourage that. But if you feel like the only point is to exclude other people who don't believe it, then I think you've missed the point of this story. So if somebody were to say, I, do I have to believe this in order to believe the message of Jesus? I would tell you that you do not. Um, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke would back me up on that, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes into you know, the knowledge of understanding how the Gospels were written, which is something I know you cover every every week as we've been going through the Gospel of John, but that, that separation between the Gospels. and Because nowadays we have the benefit of, of cross-referencing and, and having uh, more understanding of the background that they were written. But at the time, they, they as you said, they're not collaborating. They're not trying to create like a, a full picture between the four of them. This is it. Like this is what they want to want to. Yeah, say. and the closest they get to collaborating is most scholars believe uh, that Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark's gospel when they wrote their, their yeah. works. That's, that's as close as it gets to collaboration. Um, but so there's definitely some influence from Mark into those two. There's not a lot of influence of Mark in John's gospel, but it's important to know that um, because I think that people, people think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all wrote these stories down as they were happening, right. which is about as far from the truth as you could possibly make it. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like a lot of the disciples thought that Jesus would return in their lifetime and perhaps didn't need to, to write down the story. There's even an argument that they wrote down the story because they started to doubt that Jesus exactly. was going to return exactly. because they're like, Oh, I might die before <laughs> right. Jesus comes back. I should write this down. Exactly. And 
when you think of the story told from that perspective, um, I, I actually find it quite beautiful um, because I think that so much of human history and human understanding of God is people being convinced of one thing and then their current situation or reality mm -hmm. sets in and they have to reimagine God. And Peter Enns talks about how this is the biblical tradition, is a constant reimagining of God. And that's the consistent thread throughout the story of the Bible. Yeah. While we're on the subject of gospels, getting into really near, near, uh, nerdy territory, um, any thoughts on Q? Yeah, I, I need to brush up on this before I get into it. So don't quote me on these okay. things. But Q is considered to be an extra source um, that uh, Matthew and Luke may have had that is like a gospel that we don't have a copy of that recorded the life of Jesus. Um, some people are, are absolutely convinced it exists. Most scholars, I believe, they had some other common source because they share stories, right. Matthew and Luke, that aren't in Mark's gospel. Um but yeah, I talked actually about that, I think at the beginning of the Matthew series. Oh, nice. And I really researched it for that one. So trust, trust those words <laughs> over what I'm telling you now, because I haven't thought about Q much because very few um, scholars believe that Q was a part of John's gospel, I believe. Yeah, that's yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, Matthew, you have, when you study synoptics. Matthew, you have to be aware, familiar with Q. Um, and, and I would say the same for Luke. So if you want to know more about Q, this extra source that we don't have a copy of today, then I would recommend, I'm pretty sure it's the first or second sermon uh, in the Matthew series. Nice. Um, let's get to one of the, the parts that you spent a lot of time talking about in the sermon. Um, and that's the idea that after Jesus raises Lazarus, at some point in his life, Lazarus dies again. The family suffers again. Uh, even though it was, there, there was this temporary fixed suffering at some point in some way, shape or form happened again. Um, so because of that, do you think that this miracle in John 11 is more of a curse than a blessing in the long run? And if so, why would Jesus do this? I don't think it's a curse because I think it's a gift to be alive. Hmm. And even though we die and even though we suffer, I still hold to the idea that to exist is a gift. And the only reason we really suffer is because we love. So I don't know what Lazarus's quality of life was like after, after he rose from the dead. Martin Scorsese, as I said in the movie, uh, imagined a pretty poor quality of life. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting idea that should challenge everyone who thinks about this story. Um, but I, uh, I, I don't think that Jesus cursed him by bringing him back to life. Uh, I believe that when Jesus brought him back to life, it's that, that reaffirmation that to be alive is a gift. Hmm. Oftentimes, Christianity has this mindset or, or this mentality that the temporary is not as important as the eternal. Um, for example... Uh, in a previous situation I was working with, I, one of the leaders of, of this church that I was working with after a natural disaster happened, put out a statement that essentially said, um, while it's important that we help these people that are in need and take care of this, please don't forget our overall goal, goal which is, uh, being excited about the return of Jesus, right? I think this is an example of the, the temporary is not as important as the eternal. Why do you think that's such a pervasive mindset um, in Christianity? And do you think that Jesus emphasized the temporary more or the eternal more or, or equal in capacity? I think that that e prioritization of the eternal over the temporary is a message from those who are in power. Mm. Why do you say that? And the reason for that is because it asks you not to change anything. So a big thing that I left out of this sermon, and this is, this is why I'm glad that we can do this stuff yes. and talk like this, is because um, at Paradox, I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, um, and I don't want Paradox to be an anti-Adventist church. So there are things that I actually hold back from saying because people walk in that either have an Adventist heritage or some familiar with the Adventist message that if they were to hear me be critical of it, we'd miss something. So um, when we talk about the black theology and how in black theology, heaven is irrelevant for those ideas and understanding of who God is. Um, 
there is a story from Ellen White, who is one of the founders of Adventism and is held up as a prophetess by the denomination where I, I think it's in on education and I can get a reference if anybody wants it. You can email me at Craig at paradoxredlands.com. But in on education, she says the words that the colored man should not seek equality with the white man because it detracts from the soon coming of the Lord. Right. Yeah, exactly. That is a racist statement, no matter any, any way that you slice it. And it's only said because a white person who is in power, or who has privilege, um, really believes what she's saying. I, I really think that, that she thinks that Jesus is coming back soon. But she's saying, let's not fix our racial issues because the most important thing is to stay focused on Jesus. Well, you can only say that and say it's not that important if you're not suffering from it. So whenever somebody comes along and asks everyone to stay the same so they can continue to preach about Jesus and the return of heaven, that is maintaining a status quo and a power structure that's currently in play um, or privilege or racism. It's, it's asking everyone to stay the same because change is difficult and it requires a lot of difficult conversations and people in power just typically don't want to have that and they don't want to give up their their power for that. Yeah. If it's benefiting you, it's hard to hard to change or exactly. hard to be aware of how beneficial change could be for everyone. Exactly. And that's why I think it's so important to be aware of that. If there's something that your denomination hides, go find it. <laughs> because there's yeah. a reason they hide it. There's a reason they're not being honest about it. And uh, I think the most healthy thing that, and I wish that the Adventist church would have done this when I was still working for them is they would have taught this to all of their students and they mm. would have said, this is a racist statement. And they said, clearly, if we've put too much emphasis on the return of Christ, it can enable racism. So we need to be careful for that. Yeah. And if they would have taught us all of that, you can imagine how all of a sudden the Adventist church could have been a leader in racial equality rather than continue to propagate the same message. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing with all, I mean, you go to any, <laughs> any of the Christian denominations that have things they try to hide. If they embrace that and understood it and made apologies and said, this happened before, we cannot let it happen again, they would all be better churches in my opinion. Yeah, I think this kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier about honesty as well and how that being the most important thing. And yet sometimes we can get very, worried about perception or, or how people view us or new people coming in or growth. And so we try to mask those things rather than just come face to face with them. And that coming face to face with them is when the actual transformation happens, yeah. I think. Well, even like Martin Luther, I mean, we're still as a non-denominational church at Paradox, we're still Protestant, right? Yeah. Martin Luther is somebody who I, I've heard about my whole life growing up in Christian education and uh, going to grad school, all of that. It wasn't until I was talking about how great he was that a lay person told me, you know, he hated the Jews, right? And I said, what? <laughs> and it turns out that the last half of his life, he was, he was an extraordinary humanitarian for the first half, and he was a terrible anti-Semite for the second half of his life. So why isn't that being taught? And why is it that we're not studying the same passages that Martin Luther taught or studied and said, like, guys, these yeah. passages can lead to some horrific racism and anti-Semitism. Make sure that you educate people about this and let them know about how this is. Because, I mean, he basically dreamed of the Holocaust, which came to fruition in his country a few centuries after he wrote about these things. And I, I really wish that churches would be willing to embrace and tell the story of their entire church, not just the convenient parts. That's yeah, I that's a great uh, point. I I, act, I have not heard of that before. So I'm just just hearing that now. Um, I remember there was this pretty popular Martin Luther movie that was kind of shown in like Bible classrooms around uh, around the world as I was growing up. And they, they definitely didn't get to that part of the movie. You know, they, they ended at a certain point that, that probably wouldn't have great made a great film if it continued on. And uh, all of a sudden Martin Luther becomes anti-Semitic. Yeah. But uh, that, yeah, that's so important to talk about. And I think a lot of times it creates more hurt when you realize like, oh, there were so many opportunities for this to be taught and it wasn't. Why not? You know? 
Well, and it's to deny our racist past as Protestants. Yeah. It's, it's like we try to insist that we're not racist, even though um, the cornerstone, the, the central figure of the Reformation, um, once again, he didn't start off this way. It was, it was toward the second half of his life um, that he just went full in on anti-Semitism and like hated, hated Jewish people. And it's, it's terrible racism. Yeah, absolutely. Coming back just a little bit to that um, idea that uh, if you're in power, then you don't want to change as much. Do you think that's why it's so important to recognize the uh, nature of, of the context that Jesus grew up in being a poor and oppressed Jew? Yeah, Richard Rohr talks about how um, Jesus is never critical of sinners. And when you read <laughs> closely what, uh, when you read story, closely the story of Jesus, he's not. And you have to qualify that though and to say that Jesus is never critical of sinners that society deems right. to be sinners. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I believe it's Richard Rohr who also says that the number one sin that Jesus can't stand and condemns heavily over and over again is abuse of power mm-hmm. and how the religious leaders abuse power, how different people in society abuse power. And this is what Jesus always speaks out against. And what we often forget is that Jesus is a poor peasant from Nazareth who has been taxed out of everything that he's owned to the point where he just leaves it all behind and starts wandering around mm-hmm. the desert and teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he speaks on the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking to people who have ta- been taxed 70 to 90% of their income, and they're worn out by this empire. And I think that the more that you can bring that image uh, of Jesus to life, the closer you can get to the inspiration of the scripture. I remember that, re- that idea really hit me when I kind of was reading back through the temptation of Jesus over and over again. And I was like, what is the, the common thing here? And it was like, oh, it's power. Like this, Jesus could have been tempted with a lot of different things. And the thing it continually comes to is abuse your power, abuse your power, abuse your power. Yeah. And I get, I get accused of being in a certain political party all the time (laughs) to which I would say, I'm pretty sure that the gospel is always going to be critical of whoever's in power. Mm. Now, obviously there are bigger offenses than others committed by those who are in power. But, um, when, the United States of America is the most powerful nation on earth. It's really hard to teach the message of Jesus without being critical of how the United States has abused that power over and over again. Like that's the natural position of the gospel. Yeah. Um, and that's what I think is something that we need to talk about more often. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like we could talk about that for hours. So that's just a, such a fascinating topic, but, um, Coming to a little bit of the, the midsection of the sermon where you transitioned and started talking about, about, about black history a little bit more. Uh, uh, we spent a lot of time this month talking about the racist past and present of America that was often driv- driven and enabled by Christianity. Um, and this week you talked about how heaven was used to justify white supremacy. Um, the temptation is always to pretend that this idea is behind us, that heaven being used to justify white supremacy is behind us, is a thing of the past. Um, so to steer us away from that temptation, how, how do you see this idea present even today? Yeah, I, I think it's the fact that mass incarceration is the most tangible racism that our country pass, practices on a day in day out basis. I mean, the fact is there's these for profit pr- prisons who are making money by imprisoning black bodies, uh, and are very rich because of it. Um, I, th- I think that people need to pay attention to that. And the fact that uh, black and Latino Americans are targeted more by police and their cars are searched more for contraband, even though studies show that white people <laughs> are more likely to carry contraband when they're searched. Um, I-, I think it shows that there's this racial injustice that still occurs within our country in a very tangible way. I tell you all that because if you speak out at this as a pastor in America today, the majority of congregations, the overwhelming majority of congregations in America will tell you that you're being too political and the pulpit is no place for politics. Yeah. And when you ask why you can't speak about political issues like this, even when it's a sin of racism, they will say because 
Our work is to mm. focus on Jesus Christ who is returning soon. So just preach the good news and Jesus will come back and fix our racist problems. I have a real strong suspicion that whenever Jesus comes back, we're going to go to heaven and we're all going to turn to Jesus and say, fix our racism. And he says, well, why don't you fix it yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't think that that gets cured. I think that we spend the eternity of heaven trying to figure out how to, to live with more respect and love for one another. And, um, that's where I think a lot of people miss the gospel and heaven is like this cure all where people say like, Oh man, I can't wait to go to heaven when all these biases and injustices stop and Jesus won't ask me to change at all. It'll just all of a sudden work. Right. Yeah. Like magic. Like, what kind of magical <laughs> fairy tale are you living in? Yeah. Like, I, I think it's going to be, I, I, if you don't, there will be so much emotional reconciliation and reckoning that would happen with heaven where you actually have to listen to the people who are being oppressed and hurt by the system that you and I are benefiting from. And while we've talked a lot about racism within the month of February, which I think we should, you have to talk about all forms of privilege, whether that's a certain salary that you have or a certain education you have, or the fact that you're a man instead of a woman, or the fact that you're cisgender instead of transgender or non-binary. Um, He's talking about all of those privileges and heaven will not be the place where all of a sudden everybody forgets and we're cool. (laughs) Heaven will be the place where there is reckoning and those voices will come forward and God will side with them and we have to work to make that better. I think it will be this emotionally uh, uh, distraught time where we come face to face with the evils that our society perpetuates today. And when I really look at the message of Jesus... I really believe that he's inviting us to become, to come face to face with those evils now and not wait, uh, not wait until another lifetime. And that's where I think the message of Jesus is really powerful and really inspired. Yeah. Yeah. As if, you know, reconciliation can happen without change, (laughs) you know, exactly. (laughs) Um, you referenced the work of James Cone several times in this message and, and specifically his book, black theology and black power. Um, can you tell us a, a bit about your experience reading this book? You said it hit really hard. Um, tell us some of the, the thoughts that went through your mind and some of the emotions that you were feeling as, as you went through this reading this as a, as a white male. Yeah, Maury Jackson recommended that I read this book. And I read it and it was just hard to read because it was asking me to come face to face with the suffering that the United States of America had caused for black Americans. And the fact that over and over again, Black Americans were told, we're going to provide this eventually. And in the meantime, white America assassinated Malcolm X and then Martin Luther King Jr. And then after this book was written, Fred Hampton. It was, it was difficult to read. And I, I think that I still believe that America wasn't fully racist when I read it the first time. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to come face to face with that. And James Cone um, is angry when he writes this and understandably so. I mean, this was his reaction to Martin Luther King Jr. being assassinated. Mm-hmm. And uh, he continued to write. He continued to develop his theology. Um, but black theology is ultimately liberation theology. And I think that it's got a lot to say about who Jesus is. And when he says black theology is Christ's central message, if you really dive into what happened in America in the 20th century and before, it's really hard to disagree with him. Because if you really believe that all of us are made in the image of Christ, white America for over two, three, now four centuries has done everything it can to deny the image of Christ in black men and black women. Mm -hmm. And he is asking, demanding that white America come face to face with the fact that they haven't, and also to start seeing that black men and women are created in the image of God. Um, kind of related to this, when even before you get into the book, right? When white people hear the word black power, it's often very misunderstood. Um, so what does this term mean specifically in, in this work by James Cole? Yeah, I was raised with the understanding 
over and over again that black power meant that black Americans thought they were better than white Americans and that it was like, this is so warped, but essentially a version of white supremacy for black people. That is not true, especially according to this book, whereas the book is just saying um, that to be black in America is beautiful. And when a black person says yes to their own black being, it will ultimately cause discomfort within white Americans like myself. Um, and if I refuse to accept their yes to their own black being, then there will be a fight or a war or violent conflict because they will not accept um, anything less than equality. Yeah. And it's so funny how that got warped into this idea that they think they're better than us. Yeah, I can't say I'm surprised that it got warped. By, yeah, because you know, it got probably got warped by people in, by white supremacists. Right, exactly. Right? Um, and white supremacists. When I say white supremacists, I I have to recognize that that's my own story too. Um, whenever whenever a white person will stand up on TV or on a platform and say, "I'm just so tired of politics. I'm done talking about politics." That's ultimately a statement that's. Uh, dressed up in white privilege. Mm. And the reason for that is because politics work for white people. So they have the choice. We have the choice to avoid talking about them because it's, we've got a sweet deal right now. And when, uh, when black people come along and they ask for equality, it will seem like threatening to those, uh, it will seem threatening to those who have privilege, but it's ultimately the way of Jesus. Yeah. Um, transitioning a little bit, you, you use this idea that heaven is irrelevant for black theology to talk to us about embracing the idea that we are all going to die and that uh, this should be a motivator for us to end racism or uh, at least improve, I, th I think was the word you used, on making heaven on earth now and, and starting to make steps in in the racist history that is America. Um so why, why do you think that it's so important to embrace the idea of death rather than run away from it, which Christianity can often do? I think if we run away from death, we're ultimately afraid of death, right? Yeah. And I think that the message of Jesus, more than you will be raised again one day, is you can live without fear of death. Um, you know, when Paul writes about, oh, death, where is your sting? Um, and talks about how he doesn't fear the grave anymore. He's not talking about an afterlife. He's talking about how he lives with such reckless abandon that if they were to kill him tomorrow, he would feel like he was doing the thing that God called him to do. So when Christians get uncomfortable with the fact that we say we're going to die, you know, sometime, <laughs> I think it's ultimately a fearful statement of death. And the message of Jesus is how you and I can live without that fear. Now, James Cone came along and presented this idea that the, heaven, the idea of heaven is irrelevant for black theology. And if you just cherry pick that statement out of his book, you will misunderstand what he's saying. Because what he's talking about is how white supremacists, white Christians, took the message of Jesus and the message of heaven and took away the substance of the message, which is liberation and equality for all, and instead filled their black slaves with fear and told them that as long as they behave, then they'll have the reward in the next life. Mm -hmm. um, you have to pay attention to that to understand what James Cone is getting at. And all of a sudden, when you realize the history of it, you hear him say the idea of heaven is irrelevant for black theology, and you have to say, of course it is. This isn't really debatable. Um, and anything that wouldn't address the racism that black America has faced today is something that really isn't Jesus's message. So I think that we have to remember that as we read about black theology and black power and also understand anti-racist movements today, whether it's Black Lives Matter or anything else that's doing some great work to end or fight against racism. Yeah. Getting to our audience question, um, it says, love the teaching and agree, but question, loving, uh, loving often takes resources. How does loving with everything we've got now before we die correlate with stewardship and having more world for future generations? I think that's a myth 
the idea that you have to be rich in order to love? Because they use the word love on that question, right? I believe so, yes. Loving others, yes. Yeah, Jesus didn't have money. Um, so the idea that people who have more can make, make a bigger change or uh, somehow revolutionize things more because they have more money, I think is a myth. Um, Jesus didn't have money and he changed the way that we understood how love works and who God actually is. Now, there is the question of if you do have money, what can you do? Um, because that is one of those markers of privilege in our society, a capitalist society of what people don't experience if they don't have money. Uh, I think that one of the best things you can do is you can speak out against the privilege that you have because of the money that you have, right? Um, for instance, for me, like when I talk about racism, it's not really my job. It's not my job at all, in fact, to tell people who have suffered from racism what racism is. <laughs> like that doesn't help them at all. They know. And it's very condescending when I do that. This, this is what white splaining is, right? What I can speak about, though, is white supremacy. And I can speak about how I have been blind to racism. And I can speak about that dynamic of the, the story of racist America that, um, and how to change that. And I know that's not the fun part to talk about. It's not the, the side of the rebellion, um, but it's ultimately the side that needs to be talked about. I find it rather funny that the United States of America loves Star Wars um, because the story of Star Wars is about a rebellion <laughs> that conquers an empire. When the truth is we are the yeah, empire yeah. and I can imagine, I just, I, I can't imagine people going to other places that the America, uh, that America has military presence and they say, well, actually Americans love Star Wars and they say they do. Yeah. Why? And they say, well, they identify as the rebellion and they'd be like, what? <laughs> How do they see these movies and not identify as the empire? And we just love viewing ourselves as like the podunk rebellion that conquered the Brits, which was a while ago. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, if we really want to address the problems of empire, we have to identify that we are the empire, that we are the military might. And when we read the stories about Jesus, uh, we're reading stories where he's critical of us. And I know that's not fun to talk about, but if you really want to do something, you address the privilege that you've had because you have money or because you're a man and you speak about that part. You don't, as a man, tell women what to do when a church denies their ordination. You don't tell women that you think that they're good even though the church doesn't because that doesn't help at all. Instead, you continue to speak about how the church has fed you these sexist ideas and how you can combat those and what can change. Yeah. Um, a couple closing questions, a few closing questions rather. Um, what is something new that you learned about the text in your studying of John 11? So I actually knew this story better than most stories in John. Uh, I studied this one a lot um, from the time that I decided I was going to be a pastor until now. So I didn't learn a whole lot from the text uh, of this story. That being said, the sermon study group saying, it's a problem that Jesus resurrects him because all this stuff you're saying about death and grief doesn't really apply was a very new way of looking at the text. And this is why I have this sermon study group is to challenge me to see what I'm missing. And that's where I started talking about the resurrections temporary and speaking about that out loud is the new thing that I learned. Yeah. Last Friday on February 28th, we hosted an event called Paradox After Dark. And uh, we had an open Q&A about the intersection between faith and sexuality. And there were a lot of leftover questions. Uh, can you tell for people who are eagerly awaiting the answers for that question, uh, estimated time of when we'll do that or, or when we can look forward to, to having that behind the event podcast? So I think that anybody that listened to Paradox After Dark understands how important it is for us to have uh, a female voice as part of the conversation. Yes. <laughs> Mandy currently works for us part-time and she's preaching uh, in a couple days this weekend. So the reason why it's not happening this week is because Mandy is on full-on sermon mode and she's only with us part-time right now. Um, uh, sometime in the next, by the end of March, I would say for sure we're going to do it. I'm hoping to do it next week, but we'll see. Sounds great. Um, last question. 
what do you hope that people take away from not just this message of John 11, but the seven miracles in general, Black History Month in general? Maybe we can split it up into those three things. What do you hope that people take away from the story in John 11, from the seven miracles as a whole, and from Black History Month as a whole at Paradox? I think the first thing from John 11 is that God grieves with us in our suffering and it's still worthwhile to love yeah, despite the fact that we suffer. For the seven miracles, I hope that you are captivated by the humanity of these miracles. Um, I've never heard people talk about the humanity of the miracles. It's always about the divinity and the miraculous nature, but how do the human beings who interact with Jesus and benefit or suffer from these miracles respond to these miracles? I think is the really, really interesting part of these stories. Uh, the minute somebody starts to debate whether or not they literally happen, I'm not that interested because I'm, I'm really not interested in that conversation with the gospel of John. Cause I don't think that's what John does. Um, so that's what I would hope people take from the miracles. And then lastly, from black history month, uh, to, Anybody to my white siblings, I would say to them, understand that racism is still alive and is still a problem. And the more that you study the history of white supremacy in America, the more valuable it will be. Read black authors who understand this and share that perspective, because I, I will tell you, it's life changing. It's been life changing for me. And it's made me aware of my own unconscious biases uh, that I need to be aware of uh, to people of color. I would say uh, thank you for the voices that have come forward and have bravely spoken ab out about inconvenient things. And I would just encourage them to continue to speak and to continue to trust their own experience and continue to raise their voice uh, as we work toward our mission statement to see and embrace Jesus Christ and all. Yeah. Thanks. Anything else you want to add? No, I've enjoyed this. Thanks so much for the questions. And thanks to our congregation member who wrote in a question. Yes. You can always write in a question. Also, uh, you can email me a question if you think about it a couple days after at craig at paradoxredlands.com. Thank you so much for listening, and may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all of it.